Um, my name is Pastor Nick. Uh, a really warm welcome to you. Uh, literally, very hot day today. Um, we are in part four of our series on King David. Uh, and, and I'd like, by way of opening, uh, to take you back to a period um, in American history in the 1960s and 1970s. It's an era, it's an era or a period of time that I find particularly fascinating. Uh, and the reason is that there are some very big characters and some very big things going on. If you think of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, if you think of President Kennedy uh, and the race to the moon, uh, you can think of Vietnam, you can think of the oil crisis, there's a lot of big things going on. And we have a president in the White House in the early 70s called President Nixon. Um, and Nixon has his presidency brought to an end by a scandal, a scandal called Watergate. Now, the scandal was that Nixon ordered uh, some CIA operatives, some sort of shady characters, to go into the headquarters of the opposing political party. Uh, it's the, the headquarters building was called the Watergate building, uh, and he asked them to bug it so that he could listen in to their conversations and find out what they were saying. Uh, and somehow gain some sort of competitive advantage in the world of politics uh, by overhearing what they might be saying. Now, of course, this was a very illegal and totally unconstitutional thing to do. Uh, Very wrong for a president to do that. Um, You may have uh, remembered that I mentioned one time in a previous message about the story of the security guard uh, in this particular uh, sequence of events who noticed that uh, there was a piece of masking tape on a door holding it open as he was doing his rounds in the Watergate building that night. And so he took it off and shut the door and went about on his business. And then half an hour later found the same door with another piece of masking tape on it. And he thought, oh, hold on a minute, something dodgy is going on here. And he was right. And he called the police. And the police found these uh, five guys in the middle of bugging uh, this building. Uh, Now, what is really interesting uh, about how this scandal plays out is Nixon's attempt to cover it up. Nixon basically tries to cover it up, and um, uh, there's an investigation launched, there are suspicions raised, uh, and some bright spark somewhere on the investigating team um, asks if any of the president's conversations were recorded. And as it happens, Nixon had this big habit of recording all his conversations. He recorded everything in the White House on tape. And he did it out of this, I think, out of this neurotic desire to, uh, to kind of you know, cover all the bases and, uh, and protect himself against all eventualities. But ironically, what happened was all the detail it provided was what then led the investigation to find him out uh, and to uncover what really went on. Now, as they were doing the investigation, uh, uh, there was part of the investigation uh, was listening to the tapes, and they found that one of the tapes had a section missing on it. And so you can hear Nixon talking, and then it goes blank for about 20 minutes, and then it picks up again. And of course, that's highly suspicious. And what Nixon said was, well, oh, you know, like a secretary leaned on the machine at that particular point, and that piece uh, piece of information, that conversation is now lost. And so what they did was they then tried to restage exactly how the secretary leant on it with their elbow or whatever and proved that it was not possible to delete a piece of tape in that way. Uh, And what then happened was that Nixon uh, then, uh, basically Nixon had deleted it. He deleted it and then he tried to cover it up by blaming this secretary. Um, uh, So really fascinating stuff because uh, that piece of conversation was really crucial Uh, to implicating him, but it wasn't available. But then, as the investigation continued, they then found a further conversation on the so-called smoking gun tape. 
Uh, and the smoking gun tape, famously in history, was the piece of conversation in which Nixon said to uh, the FBI, listen, don't chase this, there's nothing in it. And of course there was something in it, and then that then snowballed into further developments, and it brought Nixon down, out of power, um, this whole uh, scandal, which then came to be known as Watergate. Um, now, President Nixon, as an individual, he, he kind of represents us all. And that's why he's so fascinating. It's because his story is typical of what you and I, or we, can try to do when something goes wrong and we've done the wrong thing and we try and cover it up. Now, that tendency to cover things up and to try and minimize them and obscure them so they can't be seen is as ancient as mankind itself. And it dates all the way back to the Garden of Eden, uh, where Adam and Eve make a wrongful choice about how to behave, and straight away it's followed by a cover-up attempt. It's quite interesting. There's both a physical cover-up. They try to put clothes on. Um, and then there's also a verbal cover-up. Uh, they, they blame the snake. Well, you know, Eve blames the snake. And Adam blames Eve. And God blames Adam. And everybody's blaming everybody else. But no one's taking ownership for the fact that a sin has been committed. And everybody wants to try and cover it up. Other than God, of course, who sees everything all the time. And people have been doing this ever since in various different forms it's a deeply embedded pattern of doing wrong stuff and attempting to cover it up that becomes part of almost like our spiritual DNA uh, and it's part of what it means to be a human being ever since we got disconnected from God in the Garden of Eden Uh, theologians called that disconnection or they, they label that disconnection the fall because it's a fall from grace it's a fall from being connected directly every day with God Uh, Now the reason, uh, you know, so it produces both a physical death and a spiritual separation. And so we we fall away. In Jesus, people find the means of reconnecting to their Father God. The reason that Christians are so joyful and so kind of uh, filled with hope is that Jesus comes along and he reconnects us to Father God and he overcomes what was done at the fall through what he does on the cross. Uh, Now, this morning we find ourselves in part four of the King David series. Feel free to jump onto the version notes there using the QR code up on the top left. Um, uh, You may have noticed that our King David series, each of the titles has begun with the letter F. And I'm going to change that slightly today, but there'll be a reason for that. Um, We opened with fame and fortune, which was all about uh, how David confronted Goliath. That's where we started the series. And then we looked at feuds and fighting and how uh, that time when Saul went into a cave to relieve himself David could have killed him but he doesn't and then he confronts Saul and what we ended up with was like a kind of toolkit for how to handle difficult people and then last weekend we had an excellent message on Father's Day brought to us by one of our elders Damalola Awaseka who just brought us our uh, offering thought there and he brought us a message called Forever Friends and that looked at the relationship between uh, David and Saul's son Jonathan, didn't it? And we looked about, we, we understood what it meant to be a good friend. Well, I'm going to change the pattern of the letter F uh, in my title and twist it round slightly for a reason. And today's message is called Infidelity and Infamy. So the, 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 the F is in there, but it's kind of been obscured by a swap round, by an inversion, because we're looking at something sinful today. Infidelity was because David was unfaithful in honoring another man's marriage. Infamy because he tries to cover it up with a whole series of increasingly wicked things. Uh, And we unpack today the wrongdoings of what happened in this matter of the adultery with Bathsheba 
and in the subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Now, not only does David commit a grave wrong, just like Nixon, he tries to cover it up. And as he tries to cover it up, he makes it worse. So I want to ask the question this morning, or this afternoon rather, what leads us into David's temptation moment? How could we avoid a downfall like this ourselves? Where does he go wrong? I want, to underst- I want to unpack some key teaching points around the nature of temptation. And I want to sort of explain how temptation works. Now, we all wrestle with temptation. We all know it very, very well, and we fight it quite a lot. But I want to unpack something because the Bible gives us a really good picture of how this unfolds. Uh, you know, if, if the Bible was representing a totalitarian dictatorship, this story wouldn't be in there. Because dictatorships don't like mess. They don't like failing, do they? It gets covered up. If you go to Beijing uh, today, you will see no references whatsoever to the Tiananmen Square massacre of of the late 1980s because totalitarian dictatorships cover stuff up. And that's why the Bible has so much integrity because the Bible says, well, (laughs) yeah, we're not covering that up because actually that did happen. And look at what happened. But we are the beneficiaries of that because we get to see a worked example of just how temptation plays out. So let's explore some key teaching points and this will give you a very good understanding of what goes on with temptation. I'm sure you know some of these things already but I think this will help you see that really more even more clearly. So number one, temptation is often birthed when we think we are off duty. Temptation is often birthed when we think we are off duty. 2 Samuel 11 opens with a, a little clue that conditions are being set in place for some temptation for the king of the nation. The chapter opens with this phrase, in the spring when kings march off to war. Now David is a king and he's, very, he's a very good warrior. He's conducted many battles. And what we're really expecting in the next part of the sentence is something like this. David has led Joab and all Israel and defeated the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. That's what you're expecting from a king who goes off to war in the spring like all kings. And David is a king and he's warlike. So This is what you're expecting. But it doesn't say that. The sentence surprises us by saying that David stayed in Jerusalem. He remained there. And so the writer of 2 Samuel, he's doing this to get our attention. He says, kings normally go out to war in springtime. But hey, look everybody, David has not done that. So he's setting us up for some different kinds of expectations. He's showing us that something's not right. I want to, first of all, and right away, suggest that David has taken himself off duty at a time when he should have been on duty and leading his army. Now, it's true that our lives cycle in and out of being on and off duty, don't they? You know, we all have kind of patterns where we go and face a customer, we do a job, we're in front of a class, uh, you know, we, we, we do something where there are responsibilities and we're very much on duty. And then we have times where we're kind of off duty. You know, we arrive back home from work, we flop in front of the telly, we put the microwave, microwave on, you, you know, whatever it might be, and that level of focus just drops down a bit because we're off duty, right? Uh, what I want to say is I think we need to pay really strong attention to those off-duty times and those down times when it comes to the issue of temptation. Because I think there's a real case to suggest that we can sometimes let ourselves off the hook morally as we kind of come off the hook professionally. I really think that that is true. And so we have to grasp that we may be entitled to our downtime from work, but we never have downtime as Christians from personal righteousness. 
Amen? We can, we, we can sometimes have downtime from work, and that's completely right and proper. And actually, God ordained a day of rest once every seven days, didn't he? So that's completely godly to do that. But we are uh, under a kind of a, an obligation or a duty, if you like, all the time around the matters of our personal righteousness and our morality. We are always on duty with our morality. So, you know, never mind Watergate. Isn't this exactly what's just happened with Boris Johnson and Partygate? Do you not think that that's exactly what's happened? Now, part of me is pleased that finally our democratic process has gone through and done, a, done a, an investigation into that and held, the, held Boris accountable. But it does feel all a little bit late because some damage has, some serious damage has been done. This, these parties or this time of celebration that the Conservatives had at that time in a time of being off duty, um, it felt to me like as they were off duty, some of the morals dropped as well. Some of the standards that they were expecting from the rest of the nation didn't quite make it into that party atmosphere. And so it's so key to learn that in off-duty moments, temptation can sometimes gain a foothold. And I also want to just say, I think the opposite is true. When we're on duty and uh, we're, we're doing what we're called to be doing and we're out at the front fighting the battles as kings should do in the spring, then that's a great antidote to temptation. One of the greatest antidotes to temptation is having a great big fat massive purpose in your life. It really, really helps. David would not have got into all of this had he been away doing what he should have been doing. So our first teaching today is to really pay attention to those off-duty moments because temptation is often birthed when we're off-duty. Number two, temptation is often birthed when we are out of routine. Verse two gives us another clue, but it's a small clue, but it's very important, uh, about some background conditions that are brewing for David and his temptation. It says in the CSB version there, one evening David got up from his bed. And then in the ESV it says, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Uh, The NLT puts it this way, late one afternoon after his midday rest. Now basically David has been having a midday nap. Now please don't hear me wrong, I don't think a midday nap is sinful all by itself, amen? I mean, you know, like it's, it's kind of okay to have a midday nap now and then. In fact, there's some studies that say, um, you know, a 20 minute little shutting of the eyes after lunch is good for your brain. You know, so if you feel you have the capability to do that, then go right ahead. Having a little nap is not a sin in its own way. Um, but I just want to point out to you that I think David is out of routine. Uh, had he been out of the front, he'd have been up first thing in the morning, on the campaign all day, and then going to bed at night. And for most of us, that is the routine that we have, unless there's some kind of health thing going on or whatever. David has been resting in the day on his couch. Now, Joab and Uriah and those guys besieging Rabbah, can I just put it to you that they're not slouching on a couch at <laughs> this time? They are taking an offensive against an enemy and trying to win a battle. So what I'm saying is that being... You know, closely related to being off duty is being out of routine. When you're in routine, I think temptation is less able to reach you, just like it's less able to reach you when you're on duty. I'm also really struck by the contrast between Uriah and David. Have you noticed that in the story? David is really kind of uh, descending into a bad place here, but Uriah comes back from the front and he won't even Um, kind of allow himself what he's actually allowed to do, which is to go home and sleep with his wife. That's perfectly permissible and correct and right. But he is so on duty that he's like, no, 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 I can't do that. That's completely wrong for me to do that. I'm in the mode of being on duty. Can you see the contrast there? That's really, really big. 
The teaching point here is to be more aware of temptation when we are out of routine, such as if we're on holiday or we're doing something that's a bit more unusual with work. Now, being in routine by itself isn't a virtue, and being out of routine by itself is not a sin. But let's all be a little bit more watchful when we're out of routine. Amen? It's really, really important. Um, When things are not in routine, I have spotted for myself, and I'm sure you've spotted this too, that you you kind of give yourself a little bit more permission and a bit more latitude, and that itself can lead to to fertile grounds for temptation. Like, for example, hey, you know, you might be over at the NEC at an exhibition for the first time in 10 years. You know, you've got, your work has sent you there. And you're there and you're thinking, wow, this is really cool. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of not stuck behind my desk today. I'll treat myself to a new watch from that stand on the credit card. Seeing as I'm here, why not? Do you see what went on there? You kind of told yourself a little permission story based on the fact that it was set up by the fact that you were out of routine. Now, maybe I'm making a bigger deal of it than you would. Perhaps you're more holy than me. But I'm just saying, I I struggle with those out of routine moments. I have to go, hold on a minute. Don't be giving yourself a whole bunch of permissions that you don't normally have. Or perhaps you might say to yourself, ah, yeah, we haven't been on holiday for ages. You know, calories don't count on holiday. Okay, there's a bit more identification with that one. Yeah. (laughs) Calories do count. They always count. That's the the pity of it, isn't it, really? Um, Some of us have cottoned on to the matter of being out of routine, and we're watchful, and we're on our toes. But some of us have not yet clocked that we permission ourselves in unusual and extra ways when we are not in routine. So those are the first two. Number three, temptation is often birthed in times of little purpose. Um, I think the artistry in 1 and 2 Samuel is excellent. They are my favorite books in the Old Testament. It's hard to choose, but they would, they would come up just near the top. And um, the, the detail and the skill in the storytelling is excellent. Um, there's another little detail that comes out in these opening verses. Uh, and, and the way that it's so subtle mirrors the subtlety of temptation. Um, What's going on is there are these little hints, these little things are brewing, and then suddenly, wallop, we have a great big fat sin from a king of a nation. And you, you kind of didn't see it coming, but there were all, the ingredients were all there, but it was very low level. And temptation works in just the same way. It tells us this. It tells us that after his rest in the middle of the day, David strolled around. He's not got any purpose in mind. It's aimless and it seems harmless enough. He's just walking about. Now, it's perfectly fine to take a stroll. It's perfectly fine to have an aimless wander now and then. That's not a sin in and of itself. But aimlessness and boredom definitely is a background condition that lends itself to temptation being able to grow. So when you're taking a little wander or a little stroll that doesn't have a framing purpose to it, watch out because you are going to be more prone to reacting to what you see in front of you than perhaps you would do if you set out with a purpose in mind. Purpose helps us navigate past distraction, doesn't it? Um, Heading out with no aim at all and you'll be pulled off course that much more easily. Think of those times when you go to the supermarket and you've got a list and you're focused. You get around the supermarket and there's a high correlation between your shopping list and what's in your basket, right? And you get home feeling really smug because you've met your budget and you've actually done what you set out to do. That's that's going to the supermarket with purpose. Now contrast that with going to the supermarket at half past nine on a Tuesday night, there's nothing in the fridge and you are hungry and you wander around 
like an aimless zombie, you know, and you pick up those ready meals and you get home and you find you've got a 24 pack of Walker's crisps and you've got like a, you know, a bag of that Belgian choc chip, you know, choc chip uh, shortbread and you think like, how did that get in my basket? And you're, you know, you put it there because you got tempted. You wandered around the supermarket with no list and you got visually tempted by their marketing. Can I just give you a little tip? It's always on the ends of the aisles. That's where they kind of do it. I only just realized that a couple of years ago. You know, anyway. Temptation is difficult to navigate because it works precisely in those moments when we are a little bit off guard, a little bit off duty, a little bit out of routine, um, in a little bit of downtime, Uh, It's all coming along in this really, really subtle time. Um, It works really well when you're in that place of not having much purpose. Can I just contrast this really, uh, this, this situation that David finds himself on the top of the palace with another time in David's life when he's been uh, living in a town called Ziklag with all his kind of family and uh, relations and his men and he goes off and has a battle and when he comes back he finds that raiders have taken everything from the town of Ziklag and sacked it and they're going off into the distance and he is really upset and angry and in fact his men talk about stoning him. Um, Everything that he values has been snatched away from him. Now what you don't see him doing at this point in such a point of stress is kind of dossing on the couch, wandering about without a purpose, uh, aimlessly thinking about things. You do not see that. In fact, the Bible tells us that he was devastated at Ziklag. He refreshed himself in the Lord and he went after the raiders and he got everything back. And that teaches us that, uh, and, and this is my experience too, big purpose occasions and big setbacks don't really carry with them anything like as much temptation embedded in them as the low-level, off-duty, out-of-routine moments of boredom that have no purpose. Does that, does that make sense? Does that resonate with your experience? Big high points of purpose, maybe even big setbacks, they don't seem to be characterized by temptation moments as much as those aimless afternoons where you've got nothing to do and you're feeling out of sorts and you're out of routine and so on and so on. Number four Temptation grows in steps that get much more difficult to resist. And the teaching here is deal with the temptation nice and early because that far and away is the quickest and the best way to deal with temptation. In other words, the moment it appears in your head, you banish it and you move on in your mind. Um, uh, There's a number of apps that you can download from the app store called Would You Rather. Anyone here ever played the game called Would You Rather at all? Uh, maybe it's more of a youthy thing. Yes, yeah, one or two hands. Um, but it, it, we've certainly played it in the youth and once or twice in our family. Uh, and basically, Would You Rather is like, what would you prefer out of these two choices? And the app gives you two different things that you can choose from. Uh, and then you kind of think about it. And, and then as you respond, you find out what other people would choose and uh, you kind of have a hearty conversation and you find out something about them that maybe you didn't know. So we'll have a quick go now. Um, We're going to use one of Ellie's favorite ones that she often brings into an interview situation. Sometimes I bring staff into interviews to say, you know, to ask questions and just get a feel for a person maybe applying for a job. Ellie likes to ask this one. She asks the question, Apple or Android? And so pop your hand up if you're an Apple person. Okay, so a fair few. How about Android? Ooh, we got more Android users in the house. Okay, that's a win, a, a devastating win for Android uh, this morning. Uh, so, yeah, we have Android. Um, what about, very topical, hot and sunny or cool and grey? If you like your hot and sunny, give us a raise your hand. Oh, that looks like it might have won. How about cool and grey? 
Oh, the, the cool and grey are less, but you're very determined. <laughs> you're very, very determined. So, well done. And then last of all, how about savoury or sweet? Uh, Chloe's a savoury person. I'm a sweet person in our household, which works really well. So hands up for savoury. You like savoury? Okay, that's good. Not many savoury people over here. That's a bit of a weird trend. Anyway, how about sweet stuff? Put your hand up if you like sweet stuff. Okay, that's fairly evenly balanced. Um, so, um, yeah, so you've, would you rather works on the basis of two different possibilities, but you can only choose the one, okay? Uh, and there's games that you can play with that. I want to propose a would you rather for David's situation right now, that he's on the roof and he's got presented by a would you rather merman. Because actually he has, hasn't he? He's been presented with a would you rather. But let me paint for you the seesaw of what's on, the, on each end of the seesaw with the would you rather for David. So on this side, we have the, oh, I've seen this beautiful woman bathing and I'm going to walk away. <laughs> I know that that's not a good thing to let my eyes uh, gaze on for more than a split second. And I'm going to walk away. That, that's on this side of the equation, isn't it? And that's valid and right. And can I put it to us all? That's totally the healthy and the right and the correct thing that should have happened, but didn't. On this side of the seesaw, which is the other half of the would you rather, we have a whole different thing. In fact, let me read to you what's on the other end of the seesaw so that you understand exactly what we're getting into. So we have walk away or sleep with a woman who is not your wife, thereby committing adultery. Cause your servants to lose respect for you because, you because some of them will now know. It doesn't say that explicitly in the Bible, but he called for Bathsheba and found out her name. Servants talk. They will know. They will understand something wrong has gone on and they will have to be sworn to secrecy. Take the inevitable chance that you will make the woman pregnant if you sleep with her. Attempt to cover up the pregnancy in the first instance by asking the husband home from the battlefront in the hope that he will sleep with his wife. Hope that, that, this is crazy thinking, hope that the child won't look at all like you so that you can pass it off as the husband's indefinitely. Can you see how far away from rationality this is drifting at this end of the seesaw? Hope that your conscience can carry the lifelong strain of knowing. That's a big deal right there all by itself. Hope that the woman's conscience can carry the lifelong strain of knowing. Hope that the husband never finds out. Attempt, the, attempt to cover up the pregnancy in the second instance, having realized your little follow-on gift really didn't do the, do the business that you thought it would do, by asking the husband back to the palace again for a drink, getting him drunk and sending him home again so that it's more likely this second time that he might sleep with his wife. And therefore, there's an explanation for the pregnancy. Decide somehow, and this is where it gets really nasty. That was kind of... I mean, that was bad up to that point, but this is where it gets really nasty. Decide somehow that the husband dying is a better option than owning up and telling the truth. That thought has now entered his mind, hasn't it? Because he started to think that way. Then send a letter to the husband's military leader asking that the husband's death is faked as a military accident. Oh, well, you know, the sword devours all. What is that? Oh, that's just despicable. And, you know, I'm launching it thick because this is a historical story, but actually we're preaching, I'm preaching to, to me and to you. This is where it goes if we don't give it, if we, if we don't be disciplined around temptation. It's kind of easy with David's case, isn't it? Because it's, it's all there in front of us. But the reason I'm bringing this series of messages is because I think we need to hear this and be reminded how powerfully difficult temptation can be to navigate. 
But the list on this side of the seesaw hasn't finished yet. Decide in some really twisted way to send the letter ordering that man's death with that man so that he carries his own death sentence in his gear without knowing back to the battlefront. I mean, that is lower than low, isn't it? And it completely abuses Uriah's loyalty and trust towards David because he's been asked to take that letter in his pack in good faith and he reveres David at this point. He absolutely you know, idolises the guy, thinks he's incredible um, and serves him out in the battlefield and he's carrying a death sentence in his own gear to his military leader that's out there, Joab. And then, two more things. Send several other innocent soldiers to their deaths to make the military accident that is being staged for Uriah look authentic. And then last of all, break your military leader's respect for you. This is Joab's respect for David because Joab, having been instructed in this way, will now think that if a cover-up is coming or is being organized to kill this soldier, what is stopping the same from happening to Joab? So you have this great big shed load of stuff on this side of the seesaw all mapped out for you in one Samuel, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel 11. <laughs> or <laughs> just walk away. <laughs> walk away. Walk away. Walk away. Amen? Now, seeing it mapped out so plainly, it's kind of easy in this setting, isn't it? Ah, oh, yeah, Pastor Nick, I see that. That's just completely great. It ain't like that when it's in real life, is it? Oh no, temptation is sneaky. It comes upon you and it's like, it's, it's just a really, really awkward thing to manage. But the reality is the way that you handle temptation is in that clinical moment of self-discipline right early on in the process. You grab it and you deal with it straight away because temptation works like a really high interest loan and it applies itself at a thousand percent interest and it doesn't do it annually or monthly or weekly or daily it does it moment by moment and action by action it applies continually give temptation an, 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 give temptation an inch and suddenly you're, you're into a whole load of more moral debt and difficulty that you never really realized you'd taken on so deal with the temptation firmly and decisively the split second it hits you. Uh, uh, the Bible says, says elsewhere in James 1, 13 to 15, no one undergoing a trial should say, uh, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. I mean, that's like a description of what David does, isn't it? Number five, and this is the last point, temptation is a highly irrational form of thinking. When we map out the seesaw like that, and you can see walk away at one end of the seesaw on that list of calamities on this end of the seesaw, you re when you stand outside it, you can see, oh man, that's just completely irrational. Why would you ever go and do this? Why would you ever even think of letting all of that avalanche of difficulty unfold in your life? And so what happens with temptation is temptation sits on you like a great big blind spot for a while, and there's something about temptation that stops you from seeing the equation properly. And so I'm going to put it to us today that temptation is a highly irrational form of thinking. What it does is it mixes a valid desire with an immoral shortcut to fulfill that desire. And the blind spot comes along and it sits on us for a season or a few days and we can't see it for what it is. 
You know, the devil tempted Jesus to make a, make a stone into bread because then Jesus didn't have to wait until the end of his fasting period, which was the proper course of action to take. Nearly all temptations come with, it, with, with them. Um, their, their marketing packaging says shortcut on it. This is how you can get what you want, but faster. Um, what, what you don't realize is as you open the package, a whole lot of other stuff comes with it as well. So it's like kind of very, very unpleasant marketing. I'm going to ask the worship team just to return. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much. How do we navigate out of temptation? Let me just recap to you quickly uh, how we got here. Temptation um, is birthed uh, in times of being off duty. When we are off duty, we can find ourselves really stuck uh, because we're just not on duty anymore. And so we, we, drop the, we drop our guard. Number two, temptation is often birthed when we're out of routine. Uh, being in routine is helpful. Being out of routine, we need to be more on our guard. David was out of routine. He was sleeping in the day. Number three, temptation is often birthed in times when we have little purpose. If we're wandering around aimlessly in the supermarket late at night, we are likely to pick up much more garbage for our diet than if we go at nine o'clock in the morning with a plan and a list and a purpose. Number four, temptation grows in steps that get much more difficult to resist. The easiest step for David was to just deal with that thought on the top of the roof and walk away. Maybe even talk to one of his servants and pray with one of his servants or go and do some worship. And the moment would have passed. But he didn't. It grew in concentric circles of being more and more difficult. He even had a, a chance at the point of finding out that she was married. Oh, I need to stop. He could have walked away then. But it got harder and harder and harder and also the consequences got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then number five, temptation is a highly irrational form of thinking. Let's all stand BCC.